This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Great to welcome you to another podcast here in the brand new year of 2021. And as we move through the brand new year, I guarantee you a slew of creative, inspiring, exciting guests. This is the podcast where creative conversation is alive and well. Today, I welcome a fascinating gentleman, a man of words, a man of letters, and even pictures. He is an archivist, one of the finest in his field. His name is Abraham Schechter, and as he's known to say, the archivist interprets the occurrences of life, contextualizing the past and the present, and doing so with meticulous care. So let's welcome to the podcast Abraham Schechter as we go on mic. Well, let's talk first of all, Abraham, about how you and I physically met for the first time, because uh, you had been a listener of mine and a listener of one of my colleagues, Steve Lavelli on WBZ. And we we corresponded as legitimate human beings occasionally do, and then yeah. we met in a very interesting location. Tell everybody where we met. Well, uh, it, it turned out to be opportune because, for a number of reasons, every six months, except it hasn't happened this summer. Obviously, things being as they are, I get to spend a week uh, in residence uh, at the uh, Boston Athenaeum, and. Uh, also at the nearby Beacon Hill Friends House. And we had this really, really sweet correspondence talking about radio and just many of the interests that we were finding that we had in common. Uh, It worked out that we got together, and it was a Saturday, and it turned out to be my birthday. It was in January. (laughs) It was serendipitous, and the Athenaeum, for those who don't know, is is a gem in Boston, and uh, it's a library of a different sort, and uh, I live in the area, so I was thrilled that we were able to sort of connect on that and meet downtown and Beacon Hill. And Anyway, it was a great first meeting, and since then we've corresponded, and I said, I've got to have you on the podcast. So here you are, my captive audience. Thank you so much. Oh, what a joy. Thank you, Jordan. I was so curious when I first met you as to what an archivist does, and there's none better. So maybe we'll start there, and then we'll explore how all of us have a certain uh, element of journaling and archiving in our own lives. Tell me how you got into the business and what the business is all about. It's interesting to phrase it as a business, uh, but I suppose it is. I think of it as so closely tied together with uh, not just library work, which, as you know, the Athenaeum also has a very, very deep collection of archives. And that's a good example to start with because their collections are devoted very much to Boston history and things that are related and the time frame of the coverage of their general collections. Because what generally happens, in fact, it just about always happens with uh, archival collections, uh, they are built to support essentially where they are located. For example, I'm at uh, Portland Public Library in Portland, Maine, and the archives that I have built here have been grounded in the city of Portland and uh, areas that are contiguous in the state of Maine and there is Massachusetts history as well, because we, we have some common history, as you know. And so something that is unusual about archives, and it makes them edge a little bit closer to museum collections, perhaps, than to, than to collections of library books, is that you're, you're really looking at one-of-a-kind material, and that the material, its content, because you have the object and you have the subject of the object, uh, hmm. These, these things drive the depth of the indexing and cataloging. 
for example, let's suppose uh, I looked at the collection of maps in this in this archive, or the photographs, or the manuscripts. Uh, depending on what is in the substance of this material, it will drive how deeply the cataloging will be. And the depth of cataloging will mean that what we call the discoverability of the material will be enhanced. Yeah. You would type in a keyword or a subject because they have been put out there as metadata. That's where uh, the, the manuscript, the original, which I also am involved in conserving. I'm also a trained paper conservator. It's where it crosses paths, really, with um, digital uh, collections management. It must be an exciting thing to have an aha moment when you as a as a sort of detective of literature and paper and manuscript and photos, when you discover stuff based on the research you're doing. That must be exciting. Yes. Oh, and there are many. And the aha, yes. <laughs> or it could be the Eureka. I found it. I am currently working on a number of of historic collections and bringing them out for the public, and this is a good time to be doing it because those that are used to coming into libraries are tapping into the collections through their mm. computers and their mm -hmm. phones and so on. We're using databases and websites and digital imaging to be able to provide access to these things. A major collection I'm working on is um, a, uh, a photo morgue from a newspaper that downsized and they threw away the film and I salvaged it, and it is now uh, part of the library. I love that but term, that by the way, photo morgue. That's, that's an is. old newspaper guy's term. That's it really is. cool. Yeah, <laughs> It is, and it seems to be a, a, um, a term that hasn't been superseded. Uh, it, it is effectively this, this city, uh, Portland, um, of about, for about a 70-year span. Oh, wow. It's extremely interesting, and when it gets into the 80s and 90s, I start to see things that I recognize. Yeah. I even found myself in the collection. So it's a very strange thing when you start to curate your own self. That is really but, cool. That is really cool. Is. I have a question, though, about you, yes. and, and let's explore how you ended up doing this kind of work right now that's mm -hmm. that's your passion. And uh, always curious as to a, a young person's interests, if they if they lean towards history and geography and uh, and philosophy and all that. Tell us about your background, Abraham. Well, another part for your, for your lovely list of, of subjects of study is art. And uh, I went to art college. I, I went to Maine College of Art here in Portland. And I majored in photography. <laughs> and that has served me really well doing this work. Hmm. And I, I do want to throw in an, a, a eureka moment. Uh, and there have been many of these. Um, I am so comfortable handling negatives in, in this case, you're looking at a reversal of an image, and you've got the negatives lined up on a light table, which I do, and I study these things because I'm looking for information to enrich the indexing, you know, the retrievability of, of these materials. And an example, and th this has happened a number of times, I am looking at the inside of a shop, and I can see the window, and I can see what's through the window on the other side of the street. And if I scan that negative and then reverse it, I can read the type right side up. Mm, that's and cool. And this has helped a lot because there are many times, <laughs> and even, even for a townie like me, uh, in which I can recognize street corners and so on, if I do this when I see information and I know that I can just flip it just to get that, inf that extra information, 
um, it's informing me as to exactly where these places are. That is good detective work, and uh, even in the in the digital age, it, it yeah. enables you to do certain things. Now, where did yeah. you go? You said you went to art school, and, and you obviously have a great appreciation and knowledge of that, but uh, you also yeah. went further. I know you spent some time in Boston at yeah. college. Yes, after uh, studying photography as part of a Bachelor of Fine Arts program, at, at, we call it Mecca, it's the main college of art, um, I worked in the uh, in the field in commercial photography for 14 years. I was printing portfolios for um, exhibiting artists and also for publishers. So it was it was photo lab work, but it was on this very high end uh, part of the this, that type of work. And it's a business that's really gone now. But in its heyday, and for me, it was in the 90s. I was printing for Magnum Photos Inc., National Geographic. Uh, the International Center of Photography, uh, a magazine called Aperture, which some listeners mm. might recognize. Mm-hmm. And there was a need to have skilled hands in the dark room. <laughs> Imagine that. Some people that. might know what that <laughs> is, <laughs> where you're working entirely in the dark. And, um, and actually, this is where WBZ comes in. Uh, I always had the radio on, always. And that kept me company, and it, it, kept to lev- it helped me level off the stress. Uh, when I was meeting deadlines. Uh, the portfolio work, of course, was wonderful, uh, but the, um, the advertising work was what kept the bills paid. But what I found was that as the business of handcrafted photography was starting to dissipate, and I should say that parallel to that, I began teaching. I was teaching photography at Maine College of Art. I did that for 10 years, and teaching is a joy that I get to continue uh, practicing as a professional. But as I saw the field start to dissipate, really, really scale down, the writing was really on the wall for handcrafted photography, done in the darkroom, you know, done with, you know, all by hand, very labor-intensive. I seemed to get a lot of um, requests from museums and archives and libraries and I thought, well, if they're looking for restorative work, which was what I was doing in the photo lab, maybe there's a future in this. And that was what brought me to first UMass Boston uh, with their history and archives component. And I was there for a year, and then I transferred to Simmons University, and that's where my master's is from. And I have a double master's in library science, which is the overarching right. aspect of archival training, and then archives administration, and that was where I was able to learn with paper conservators. It mm. sounds like it can be a very, it's obviously detailed work, but it sounds like it can be a very lonely job. Not that it's a bad thing to be alone, but you're forced to be alone in a dark room for much of it. Yes. And and it's yes. interesting how you, you utilize what I love to do and utilize uh, sound, the sound of other humans speaking or music playing to to be that comforter, to be that friend while you're working. It's true. It's a good point, Jordan. And, and there, there are the two extremes, because my work week was like this, that um, I would meet with clientele and discuss what they needed, and then I would go into the darkroom and just dig in for hours, just hours at a stretch and not even seeing light and, uh, and, and, and without the fresh air. But fortunately, uh, being close to the waterfront, I would take these fresh air breaks and then... Uh, then I would go and teach, and so I would be in front of classes, mm. and it was really the two extremes. There's something eremitic about working alone in, a, in, a, in the dark room in a studio, 
there's some of that with archival work, but uh, with what I've been doing over these years, I'm also working with the public, and I'm mm. also listening to what people are looking for and what is important to them. And so there is a nice balance of exchange right. between you know, the intense work with the collections and also interfacing with the public. Abraham, you've mentioned to me in our wonderful get-together over a year ago, unfortunately we have to do it again when COVID lifts, but you mentioned, you mentioned to me <laughs> the sense of pride and the sense of stewardship that is part of the archival experience for you and I'm sure many other professionals who do this. Talk further yeah. about that and what do, we, what do we mean by that? Yeah, that's a very important word to me, um, and I think it, it exemplifies, uh, I would say, the healthiest way to look at the profession. Because as I said earlier, um, the, um, the way archival materials are treated and how they are outreached and how the collections are built up, it's really driven by what community you're in you know is this a corporate archive is it an archive in a on a campus and there are many um and the stewardship aspect really um is at the heart of that uh i refer to myself as being the bus driver mm. <laughs> here because i'm here for a spell i created this this department that i'm that i am managing but i want it to be something that someone else will continue and that means that the level of commitment to the way all the items all the items are treated which would be you know equally they're all important because they've been deemed to be in this case a um, a documental representation of this community mm. and so i am responsible for the preservation of this material and these collections but also stewardship to the public uh... students uh, come calling, and then these days it's by email and by phone. Uh, students, authors, people who are uh, working on their family histories, uh, someone writing something about events that happen here, or they're just studying something for whatever reason it is. It is their, I, I respect that it's their business. Uh, my role is to facilitate the material. Uh, here's an interesting thing that, that gets into newspaper archives. Uh, there are microfilms, and that is the standing way to uh, preserve old newsprint, and the microfilms can be scanned as well. I've had authors, actually, for example, a playwright writing about someone who lived in this city, and that character was going to the theater. And he contacted me because he wanted to know what was playing in the theaters on a mm. certain date and a certain year. And the way I could answer his question was I went to the microfilms, and I said, you know, at the Strand Theater, this was playing. Uh, at the State Theater, this was playing. And then the rest was up to him, but he wanted to be authentic, and you have to like Is, that, Isn't right? that lovely? I, I'm thinking yes. uh, you're, you're the guy who's, who's got Google at your command, as we all do, but there's more to it than just available on Google. There are things that you have to really do the digging, and, uh, and yeah. it must be a great feeling to know you, you can solve a problem that otherwise went unsolved before that. Yes. What a yes. great feeling that is. It really is, and I think that, uh, again, even like that playwright, or, or as you're describing, you have me thinking of how uh, this type of work and facilitating this, um, it's, it, it, you know, it comes close to the work that you do, uh, which is engaging the public and listening to what people are uh, 
or how do I put this, listening to what is uh, valued by the person who is calling in or writing in or coming in to visit, and then meeting them where they are. Well said, Uh, well said. And and you really do this, and I use these archives like an artist's palette. It really is like this. And many times, uh, because we get into memory, I think that uh, an archivist serves as memory for others. Uh, there have been many, many instances, and I, and I write about this in my journal, because some of these moments are really something else. Um, someone is making a bet with an old friend, you know, about a restaurant or something, you know, it was on this street, and they say it was on that street, and I get to the city directories, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it is the, th- the, arbiting, ar- the arbitrating third party, I guess. Uh, um, yes. Uh, and helping people sharpen their memories, and I'm seeing a lot of this lately, building these, these photo mm. archives. Um, uh, people will write to me, and they'll say, oh, I forgot all about this. Thank you. You know, oh, I used to work at that place. I worked in the kitchen, or um, my father-in-law built that office building. You're reminding me of that. You know, I'll send him the picture. But and, but there's even more than that, I know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe you can pull up an example or two, but mm-hmm. you, tell, you write to me about archive of the soul work, and yes. um, we all know in our own heart and mind, we have a sense of what soul means. But when you connect people in the present with people in the past, perhaps relatives or people they admired, and they come to life because their words are right there on that page, that photograph taken in 1932 is of that great-grandfather or whatever, that's an amazing connection that can be forged. Yes, Yes. and I think because uh, my life is so immersed in... uh, preserving and bringing out these these one-of-a-kind archival documents, I start to think, and it really, it, I've, I've, I've felt this for, for a long time, that each of us carry an archive within ourselves. Mm. And it's not, no, don't think of it as filing cabinets and you've right. got a trolley behind you. <laughs> <laughs> it's when we reach into our memories and we have, we do have a kind of file order. There are, there are the the thoughts and the experiences and the mental pictures, I guess you could say, that are very dear to us, and we tap into them. We're always opening those files, so to speak. And uh, I think that it crosses also into journal writing. That is, we, are, yeah. we are putting things down on paper, which is a great thing because it enshrines them and we can look back at them later. But I think of the archives of the soul as... Uh, memory and experience and something about the lived experience is something that stays with us. Um, I'm one of those people that remembers things that my second grade teacher said to me. <laughs> well, that, that's a perfect segue. We're going to talk about journaling. Uh, shameless plug right here. I was just telling you off air that uh, my book, my first ever and uh, maybe hopefully not my last, is yes. now out there, and I'll tell you, it's called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, and I know you love radio. But the reason yeah. I, I wrote it, I, I had this epiphany that it's about time, having interviewed thousands of authors, and also with the COVID-19 pandemic here and the fact that uh, I had a little extra time at home and I had some wonderful assistance in putting it together. But the fact is, legacy is something that we all are creating, I believe, every single day. 
And if we're lucky enough to have the time and a little bit of talent or help in my case, we can promote that legacy. But that's where journaling yeah. comes in. That's where journaling yeah. can be that legacy builder. So before we get into the, the art of it, which is cool, let's talk about how you became a journaler extraordinaire. <laughs> right. Well, I'll start by saying that for listeners that do write in a journal, um, you already know that it is, it is, a, it is really a silent witness uh, it, it's a companion and a place to jot down your thoughts. Uh, for those that are not sure about writing in a journal, or they would like to, and they maybe they they've hit some kind of block or something, it's a very normal thing. Um, as someone who teaches this, I I would like to encourage you and say that there are no rules. Uh, write in a way that makes you enjoy writing, mm. and when you do see that blank page kind of like an artist looking at an 18 by 24 sheet of newsprint paper it's blank you don't know where to put the charcoal down and get started um, when it comes to journal writing you could just take the two words I remember yeah. dot 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 yes and things will come to you and you want to find a place that is comfortable for writing at a time where you do have some time to hold some thoughts and put away some of the media that can be that can be disruptive um, for me I it was it was actually that that crossover time as I mentioned where I was going from the photo field to graduate school and three and a half years of making a lot of trips to Boston from Portland back and forth um, things being just very fluid and also that the studies were coinciding with a time that it was a very difficult time. Uh, there were losses and so forth in my family, and uh, just a lot of a lot of turbulence. And uh, I took a couple of days, and uh, I went to Vermont to the Western Priory, and I've been going back there for 24 years. Uh, a place of uh, it's a community, the Benedictine community that some of your listeners will know. Um, and one of my coworkers gave me a blank book. Uh, from one of my photographer photographer friends gave me this this blank book, and said, "I think you'll want this. It sounds like you're going to a place that that will inspire you." Mm. And I looked at the blank mm. book, and I looked at her, and I said, "I I don't keep a diary." <laughs> and she said, "Well, you never know. This may be something you'll want." And sure enough, I filled the book, and I had to fly to Europe to a funeral. And the little book was with me on the plane. And I've been writing since. There just seems to always be something to write about. And Indeed. And going back on these retreats, you know, I keep yeah. going back there, and I've made many pilgrimages. Mm -hmm. And it had me thinking that the journal writer is on a pilgrimage and is writing the pilgrimage. I love the way you, you put it. There are no rules. If, however... You become so enamored with the, the art and the passion of doing it, you might consider looking at it again as a possible uh, more formal book that you want to share with others. I, I, I think there's a book in everyone, not that everyone's going yeah. to write one, but yeah. the ease in which you can self-publish today, take it from one who knows, it really allows you to do this, and it's it's so healthy. I think that's the, the beauty. Of, and by the way, you and I have a mutual love affair with a particular little store on Bromfield Street in Boston. <laughs> we do. 
and it's a store that sells fine writing instruments. Uh, yeah. And and I urge people to check it out. But w- what's the the physical logistical best way for you to journal? Is it with a certain type of pen? I'm assuming it's pen to paper and not a typewriter. <laughs> Just assume. Well, I'm glad you asked. Jordan. <laughs> um, I keep three parallel journals, and and it's not, I, and it doesn't sound as crazy as I actually am. Um, uh, there is a reason for this, and and it was not anything contrived. It seemed to land this way. Um, <clears throat> the journal that I refer to as the journal, you know, this, this, uh, in fact, my journals have an official title. It's the archival record of my pilgrimage of trust on earth. Oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> I'd read that. It's an, ar- thank you. I'd buy that book. <laughs> thank you. Uh, that is done with pen and ink and I use, I use a fountain pen. I, I, mm. I just find them so, um, uh, rela- you just touch the paper with a yeah. pen point. There's no, Beautiful. there's no pressing down that's needed. And uh, it's, I do that when I have time to develop those thoughts. But there's something that comes before that, and it's what I call a hold-that-thought book. And those are always very small, palm-sized notebooks. And I write in those with pencil. And uh, I started doing that on a trip to... It was one of my many trips to France, and I went to Taizé, to the uh, monastic community there. And I was making little notes when I would hear... Uh, some of the uh, glosses that were being made about the readings. They were so interesting, and I wanted to hold those thoughts. But I didn't want to bring out a fountain pen in a big journal. Mm. So just a palm size, almost like a reporter's notebook or like a little field notes notebook. And I've continued doing this because the thoughts are always coming, and you don't want to lose those thoughts. You want to hold that thought. And then later on, when there's more time, I can open that in front of me and then speak to those points with the um, pen and ink journal. Mm. Then the third one is done with a, with a manual typewriter, and I use loose-leaf paper so I can put that in the roller. Uh, I don't do that as frequently, but it's a great thing to do if you find yourself in a kind of block and you want to transcend that. You want to, you want to jump over that block, and stream-of-consciousness writing has, has been... Uh, a, a good fallback for getting through any kind of any kind of um, writer's block, and I recommend trying that because when you're mm. typing on a typewriter, you can't check the news, you can't check your email. It is designed to do one thing, <laughs> <laughs> and you can't go back and delete either. You're going to have to mark up that paper to that's, do that. That's and, an excellent point. Having had many yeah. manuals in my day, I don't have one currently, but I I mm-hmm. treasured the ones I did have. Um, no, it's it's yeah. it's psychologically and and scientifically been studied for decades. The connection between the heart, the hand, the brain, and the soul. Yeah. I think. And, yes. I, and, I, and again, what you're teaching people and what you're spreading around like Johnny Appleseed of journaling is the idea that it can be a, a, a gift to yourself as well as a gift to others if you decide to share it. Yes, I agree. I agree. Mm. With the journaling classes, uh, again, you know, it, the, 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 the purpose, and, and I do practice what I'm preaching, I, I want I want. Uh, people who are who are uh, who've been writing for a long time or who are just getting started, not to feel daunted. And I create prompts, and these seem to be very popular. It gets people writing, and it makes people also feel like sharing and kind of getting out of themselves mm. a little bit, because 
journal writing is really it's it's your first person experience so right. you can kind of you could kind of close in on yourself a little bit too easily and and so if you have a prompt and it's about a subject that gets you a little bit out of yourself uh that can also yeah. help keep the pen moving for example uh with my class i ask them to write about a skill that was taught to them by someone and to explain what that is oh i love that i love that and everybody had something to say and i wrote to I wrote about how my mom taught me how to repair my bicycle. <laughs> so every time I have to fix a flat or I have to adjust the brakes, you know, I think of mom showing me how to do this, you know, oh, at, at the great. age of 13. <laughs> uh, you know something that's interesting uh, with the, uh, the age we live in when cursive has been cursed and the fact that people aren't writing, they're not teaching yes. handwriting. Uh, we should add that you also teach calligraphy and bookbinding yes. and uh, old-school arts that, thankfully, are still being practiced. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, um, old-school is so interesting because old-school is kind of new-school in a lot of ways. Um, people that sign up for, uh, for example, calligraphy, as well as journaling, as well as these other, these other manual crafts, they tend to be quite young, and it's kind of like uh, the renewed interest in printing on a press, uh, knitting, sewing, mm. these manual crafts. Uh, Portland... As a mechanics hall, uh, there is the Charitable Mechanics Association, and I have also uh, helped them by teaching makerspaces. And a makerspace is where anyone can walk in and try their hand at some of these skills. Oh. Uh, with calligraphy, uh, I think that uh, it, there's a lot of interest, and there aren't very many people who teach it. Uh, what I also found, and it's, it's been in recent years, is that I have to spend some time teaching the, the posture of holding a pen at a 45-degree angle. <laughs> Th this is how you would hold your fountain pen, Jordan. Right? There's, a, there's an angle because you're not writing with the pen vertically. Yes. And you're not gnarling at it, right? You're, right. you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of driving the pen, right, sort of from behind. Mm -hmm. I have to teach this because... Uh, as you're saying, cursive writing uh, has turned into something that isn't really cursive. It's more like block printing. And so I do have to spend some time on how to hold the pen, which I call, well, calligraphers will call that posture. But people they take right to it, and it's a lot of fun when you have kids learning it, and then they get their parents and grandparents to come over and look at what they're doing. And then I'm hearing the stories about learning the Palmer method, <laughs> which it predates me, but... Uh, it, it almost, it, I think it, it predates me, too. I, I, I have heard there of it. About this. Yeah, there are books about this. Yeah. Uh, I just was going to add that um, when it comes to journaling and when I teach it, it must be by hand with a book and not with a tablet or a laptop. Mm. Uh, and then there'll be those that will say, oh, my handwriting is terrible, and I'll say, well, it, it means you need to write some more. You know, keep, just keep doing it. And there are many who will decide to use the dip pen to do their journaling, and the two cross over. I love it. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, and this yes. has been so energizing for me because you have such enthusiasm, let's just, let's just have you, in conclusion, talk about the impact once again of the of the archiving system and why it is so necessary now as ever has been, as it ever has been. Because um, you said it so beautifully, there's a link to the past and it's it's almost a, 
a link to our souls of the past. But in your words, why is it so important and must be preserved? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, maybe, maybe you visited the National Archives and that uh, above the portals it is, it's written, uh, past is prologue. Mm. Uh, and um, uh, yes, uh, writing and preserving the documental heritage of a person, and it could be you with your memoirs or somebody else who's doing this, or piecing together a parish history, piecing together any community history uh, or a school, You'll fill in the blank. It is a way to make sense of where you've been or a person or an organization has been, but it's also something that is it's prologue. It's, it's a way to look ahead. When I'm looking at those um, negatives from the photo morgue, um, I am reaching into the past, obviously, because I'm using maps and directories and microfilm to give some ground to what I'm looking at because I want my description of these places to be unambiguous so that someone can read that record and say, oh, yes, that's that building or street corner or event, and I am looking at the northeast corner from the south, etc. This is what's in the background. But also, there is something that I call the archives of the future, and that's when uh, people are treating raw, newly accessioned collections like I'm doing, because there are also existing collections. They've been around, and you know the, the indexing gets enhanced you know, for the digital age, but there's also the bringing out of things that the public has never seen. And you're thinking, okay, these are going to be the archives of the future. People are going, in the future, they're going to look at this, and they're going to say, ah, this is what it looked like, or uh, this is the person's name, and spelled correctly. <laughs> and um, with uh, students, especially um, younger younger middle and high school students that come into the library, uh, I, I always ask for a show of hands. I say, who keeps a journal? <laughs> See what I'm doing, Jordan? <laughs> Perfectly. And uh, yeah. I ask people to take pictures, and I say take pictures of, uh, you know, your, how you get to school and your neighborhood, and take pictures. And I show them a diner, for example, from the 40s that's here, or that was here, and I tell them what's there now. And I use that to ask them to take pictures, take pictures of the fast food place, and they chuckle, they giggle, you know, when I say, take pictures of convenience stores. What are people going to think of these things mm. in 30 to 50 years? That's great. That's great. You've you've definitely landed in the right place in life. I, I, I talk to a lot of people on a regular basis, uh, many of whom are creative and have that spark. You've got it in spades. It's really great. And uh, I look forward to uh, sipping tea once again uh, on the steps of the Athenaeum or wherever we decide to get together once the pandemic lifts, and it will lift shortly. But uh, Wonderful. Wonderful. And if I might add one, one other thing, I'm like Lieutenant Columbo, you know, one more ah, thing. Ah, yes. Uh, <laughs> think about, for those, those out there that, that are thinking either about writing or they're thinking about even picking up a new skill like lettering, uh, and certainly with an interest in archives, context is such an important concept and word, um, because we are in the middle of this right now, this pandemic, and we are doing what we're doing, and if we're documenting what we're doing, we have some context that we can 
bring to that. So I, I do want to encourage that. Uh, something else that many communities are doing, and I'm doing this as well, is uh, I've created a portal for the public to send in something about their experiences during these months. That's very, very positive. It's happening down here in the city area, too, in Boston. Yeah, I know. Uh, a lot of organizations and groups are doing just that, and I salute them. I think it's it's a worthy endeavor during tough times. Abraham yes. Schechter, you are a delight. Thank you so much, and uh, next time you're at the Bromfield Pen Store, <laughs> think of me, uh, call me, text me, I'll come over, we'll buy some pens together. Wonderful, wonderful. What a joy. Thanks so much. Abraham Schechter, archivist extraordinaire and a very creative dude. His site for more information is lavigraphite.blogspot.com. And once again, I'll spell it, L-A-V-I-E, graphite, G-R-A-P-H-I-T-E, lavigraphite.blogspot.com. want to thank you all for listening, and certainly thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions. And a reminder, my book is available for sale. It's called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, All Proceeds Benefit, Boston Children's Hospital. And you can find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. Until next time, be well so you can do good. Take care.